Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Theological Arsonist. I'm your host, Jonah Saller, and today I am joined by a good friend of mine, Matthew Pearson. He is a friend I met who most of you probably don't know who he is, and I'm glad to introduce him today because he's a really smart dude, um, seems to know a lot about theology, and we're going to be talking about a really cool subject today, uh, the subject of baptismal regeneration and kind of its history and development within the reformed tradition and so before we get into that subject though matthew would you just be able to introduce yourself and tell people who you are and what you're doing and all that good stuff of course uh i'd first like to just say uh thank you so much for having me on it's a real pleasure and yeah like you said my name is matthew pearson I'm a second year student at the University of South Florida. I'm majoring in religious studies and man, these higher critical scholars. I thought I was gonna be challenged when I went to university, but what they say is just stupid. But yeah, I'm a religious studies major at the University of South Florida. And um, I plan on attending seminary afterwards, probably RTS. And um, yeah, uh, I also just wanna preface by saying God holds teachers to a higher standard. So if I'm wrong on anything, forgive me for whatever I say. And I hope that I can be held to not only just a higher standard, but biblical standards as well. So again, Jonah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And amen to that. I think that it's always, I always try to preface things and tell my viewers that whatever I say, make sure you're testing it with the word of God. Don't take my word for it. Test everything. And so I appreciate the humility there. Yeah, so I also subject- did- Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I also just want to make that clear, too, because, again, I'm just a university student, so I'm only want to make sure that, you know, just being like, oh, I'm a theology nerd, you know, I want to actually, like, be in good charity and represent Christ well. So sorry for interrupting you. Go on. No, no, that, that's good. Uh, so the, the subject of baptismal regeneration is a complex one and I think a lot of times is a misunderstood one because there are different views on what it actually means and a lot of people when they think of it they automatically associate the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church and the idea that it's you know it's effectual for all who are baptized and there's there, the necessity of faith isn't there that the baptism itself regenerates and so I know the Reformed tradition has a history of baptismal regeneration within it um, and so I, I, I do want to get into talking about the distinctives of that. And so I'm just going to hand it over to you for you to start us wherever you want and then just ask questions and we can go from there. All right, sweet. So I think before we actually get into like the whole because, you know, baptism regeneration is a big buzzword. A lot of times it has a very negative connotation, especially in the reformed world. Um, I don't know if a lot of you know about this. I think I was probably like. You're cutting out a little bit. Hold on a second. Okay. Um, Yeah, you're totally out right now. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now, yeah. All right, so yeah. So um, sometimes my apartment complex does a thing where it just makes me go to the guest Wi-Fi, and the guest Wi-Fi is really bad, so my bad about that, yeah. Um, But uh, basically what I was saying was that baptismal regeneration is a big buzzword because in the reformed world, there is a controversy called the federal vision where people tried to combine aspects of the new perspective of Paul with reformed theology. 
and it had like a very high view of baptism that baptism did like nearly everything again this is a very simplified version so you can correct me if i'm wrong there are different shades of federal vision so your doug wilson is going to be much different from peter lightheart but just long story short baptismal regeneration because of that is a big buzzword in the reformed world and they don't really like it but it still has a history in the reformed tradition so i think in order to get to that and what that means we first would have to define like what many today would say that baptism is sure. so when what was that I, I just said sure yeah yeah oh yeah okay but um when you hear a lot of people talk about baptism many would basically say oh baptism is an outward sign of my commitment to god so that's mainly a thing that baptists will say is that it's an expression of your commitment to god and even a lot of modern american presbyterians well, they primarily see it as only like a symbol of mainly like parents dedicating their child to God. So have you ever heard of a baby dedication, Jonah? Yeah, that's actually yeah. What, what, what happened to me. I was I was dedicated as a baby. So, yep, me too. Yeah, so same. for most Presbyterians, um, baptism is really just a wet baby dedication. That's how sometimes a lot of them see it. But according to sacred scripture, church history and the Reformed tradition, baptism is much, much more than this. In baptism, God actually does something, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today. And um, any questions before I get into what baptism is? Yeah, no, no. I, I think that I think that's good because um, I do think that a lot of people, even many who are maybe viewing my channel, do tend to view baptism as merely an outward expression. Um, as opposed to an act of God where God is actually accomplishing something. And so I do think that that is a really um, important clarification, especially if we're to understand the, the concept of baptismal regeneration. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, continue. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I agree with that hundred percent. And like one of the problems too, is that with that view, some people go completely on all the way on the other side and like, cause there's like a big phenomena of a lot of people that grow up in revivalistic evangelical churches and then they're like they read a church father and ignatius is goes oh yeah i have a bishop and they're like bishop time to be catholic now and it's so it's very important that we actually get into what baptism is so people don't just go completely polar opposite right right yeah so just quick simple definition of baptism may not be simple because it's from the westminster confession of faith but the chapter 20 uh point one of the westminster confession of faith reads that quote Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Hmm. So that's just a basic definition of baptism and there are a lot of big words in there like sign and seal engrafting regeneration remission of sins giving up unto god lots of things like that so the two words that i want to focus on primarily is the words sign and seal because that's the, the thing you hear the most in primarily presbyterian circles right so in regard to sign it's pretty easy to understand a sign is just something that's representative of a reality so a, when you go up to a school there's a sign that says blah, 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 high school. So when you pull into the high school, the sign itself isn't the actual school. And the reason you can say that too, is because if your mom goes, Hey, did you go to school today? And you just drove up and you stopped by the sign, you poked it, and then you left. You, you can tell your mom, yeah, I went to school today, 
but you know, you didn't actually go to school. You went to, because school is not just a sign. School is comprised of teachers, students, assignments, lunchtime, getting bullied in the hallway, maybe bullying someone yourself if you're rude like that. I don't know, but school has a lot more to it than just the sign. So that's pretty clear. We got out of the way what a sign is, but then we also have to ask what a seal is. And I think a great way of thinking about a seal is basically um, from Zacharias or Sinus. I don't know if you know who that is. You probably do, but he's the author of the Heidelberg Catechism. Okay, yep. He explains, yeah, he explains very well what a seal is um, when he says this about baptism. He says, quote, baptism has the power to declare or seal according to the command of God and the promise which Christ has joined to it in its lawful use. For Christ baptizes us by the hand of his ministers, just as he speaks through them. So in uh, his view, to seal is basically means that God declares that he keeps his promise. So a seal is a declaration. It's God saying, this is what I will do. So we have an, we have an understanding of what a sign is and a seal. So any further questions with that? I, I don't think so. I think that that's, again, great clarifications, um, especially the, the sign part where I think some people might have different ideas mm -hmm. of what a sign is. And so, yeah. Yeah. And we're going to get to the sign part actually right now. Um, okay, perfect. Perfect yeah. timing. But um, so a lot of the times people hear sign and they go, oh, sign, you know, that's kind of like a symbol. Baptism, oh, baptism's only a symbol. And that's kind of where that logic would only lead to. So my next question that I'd probably get into is to say, does baptism being a sign mean that baptism is only a mere symbol? Or if baptism's a sign, is it only a sign? And Right. Uh, if you know, in Romans six, Paul always, Paul talks about, um, baptism there, but one of the things he answers the question of is, oh, should we sin because grace may abound? And he says, by no means. So to the question of is baptism just a symbol because it's only a sign, I would respond the same way as Paul would, um, to their question, Romans six, by no means it's absolutely not just the sign. And one of the great things that helped clarify this for me was from, uh, reading John Calvin's catechism for the church of Geneva. So it's a really good catechism. I'd recommend looking this up and reading it for yourself, actually. But one of the questions in his catechism, it, it reads, do you attribute nothing more to the waters of baptism? That is a figure of ablution. So just to clarify words, figure, again, is a sign. Right. And ablution, that's a very archaic way of saying washing, which would be ablution here would be referring to the washing in Christ's blood. So basically, in modern English, do you think that the baptismal water is nothing more than a sign of the inward washing? And so the answer to that question, the catechism uh, says this, I understand it to be a figure or a sign, but still so that the reality is annexed unto it. Annexed means attached to it. So that the reality of the sign is literally a necessary component of the actual sign. For God does not disappoint us when he promises us his gifts. And then listen to this part. This is very important. Yeah. Accordingly, it is certain that both pardon of sins and newness of life are offered to us in baptism and received by us. Mm. So that's from the pen of Calvin himself saying that. So he says that, yes, it is a sign, but a necessary component of the sign is the thing that signified it's attached to it. So that both pardon of sins, which is, you know, the remission of our sins, forgiveness of sins and newness of life, regeneration are offered and given to us good yeah that's really mm -hmm. good um because yeah. i think a lot of people when they i mean and i'm going to be a little bit redundant at this point but people think sign and then they stop there yeah 
and I, I'm, I'm just going to use the example of uh, hermeneutic when we're reading scripture, when we come to a symbol in the Bible, like, for example, the beast of Revelation, if we interpret the beast as being a literal seven-headed beast, we're not mm -hmm. going past the sign to find the reality that the sign is pointing to. And so in the same way with baptism, I think, uh, you know, Kelvin's point there, which you articulated very nicely, is that if we stop at the sign, we're missing out that the sign is pointing to a reality, an actual tangible reality of something mm -hmm. that does tangibly take place. So, yeah, exactly. So he makes it very, yeah, I agree with that completely. And he makes it clear that baptism, even though it is a sign, the reality is annexed onto it. And right. we'll get into more questions because with that, if I just said that, then just left, there'd be tons of things going in the air. Because one right. of the things for me that was hard getting into this position was because I just had so many preconceived notions of baptism saves. What about uh, perseverance of the saints? What about this and this and this? So right. I'm going to yeah get into all those things too. But I'm glad I'm glad you're I'm glad you're going to go into those things because that's exactly what I'm wrestling mm -hmm. with right now. Is how is this consistent with? things like perseverance and and stuff like that right so yeah and <laughs> the funny thing too is that one of the things that i became a presbyterian of december of 2019 or not became when i started attending a church in december right. of 2019 but um one of the things that made me go presbyterian was uh becoming to the conviction of infant baptism and ever since i became presbyterian that is one of the things i had been studying rigorously so i had a phase where i studied the trinity a lot nowadays i don't really study it a whole bunch probably should trinity is important but like um I still, ever since becoming Presbyterian, have not stopped studying baptism, and I've always wrestled with these, so, and it's taken me a long time, so I would love to just get this out here, so it's not, like, as much as, like, a drain, not necessarily draining, but it's not as much of a long wrestling journey, right. but um, in regard to the, the, the connection between the sign and the thing signified as well, um, back to Ursinus, he states it very well. This quote, it's not too long, but um, he says um, this in regard to baptism being a sign, yet not just an empty one. So he states, quote, when baptism is said to be the laver or washing of regeneration to save us or to wash away sins, it is meant that the external baptism is a sign of the internal, that is of regeneration, salvation, and of spiritual absolution. Then listen to this. And this internal baptism is said to be joined with that which is external and the right and proper use of it. Yet sin is so washed away in baptism that we are delivered from exposure to divine wrath and from condemnation of everlasting punishment. Whilst the Holy Ghost commences us in the work of regeneration and conformity with God. Remission of sins, however, continue to the end of life. So we see from our sinus that he makes it very clear that baptism being a sign doesn't mean that it's separated rather it means that it's kind of simultaneous now again not saying that baptism necessarily confers regeneration on the spot well we'll actually get to that but um it's just very clear that there's a very clear connection because he specifically said the internal baptism is said to be joined with that which is external so and beza um in one of his treatises on the lord's supper he likewise, like, you know, makes it clear that baptism actually does have a regenerative effect. So he says, quote, for Christ is clearly offered to us in baptism as regeneration and the Lord's Supper is offered as nourishment for those who have been regenerated. So again, to reiterate, baptism is a sign, yet that does not mean that it is disconnected with what it signifies. Great. And I, 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 I don't want to if you're going to get to this, just tell me I'll get there because I don't want to go too far out of order. But if if we could, could you just define uh, regeneration? 
because I think some people there's there's the idea that regeneration is is synonymous with sanctification. Some people would say it's it's a one time thing that happens when your eyes are open to the gospel before faith. Um, so how are how are you defining regeneration in the context of this? So that's a really good question, because it's very important to consider in this discussion, because a lot of times like you have to just be like, oh, does this mean that like, you know, everybody's regenerated on the spot at baptism? So I would here define regeneration as one of the ways by which God is opening us up to himself. So like in regeneration, the Holy Spirit works in us so that we're made able to accept God's promises, because in our like, you know, original state of being marred by sin, we can't really do anything. We're like completely cut off from God's grace unless the Holy Spirit works regeneration. So when I say that, when I talk about baptismal regeneration, again, I'm not referring to ex opere operato by the working of the work. He just doing it on the spot. But what I am saying is that baptism is one of the means through which Christ can regenerate. And the only re reason I'm okay with saying that, and this also really opened my mind up to it, is when you think about it, a lot of times people are, um, who are adults are saved is they, they might hear the preaching of the word. And, you know, uh, scripture says that um, the hearing of the word, um, I can't remember the exact verse, but it like basically the concept is right. from Romans, but it's like um, faith, our faith comes by hearing right. um, basically that God can by the word of God, the yeah. word. Yeah. They're the preaching of the word is a means of grace. So Christ can use the preaching of the word in scripture as one of the means by which he regenerates. So it's like, why can't he use baptism basically? Right. So when we say regeneration, it is referring to what most people think regeneration, but it's not saying again, ex opere operato it is just one of the means by which God uses it. And the reason I'm also okay with saying that is because what is baptism, but the word made visible or what is a sacrament, but the visible word. Right. And if we're, God is able to regenerate us by the audible preaching of the word, why can't he regenerate us through the physical preaching of the word shown through the sacraments and that yes. sacrament being baptism in this case. So, yeah, that's a very good question though. Yeah, that, that was a great clarification. So yeah, cause I, I think I, I want my viewers to be clear that when we're, we're talking about regeneration, we are not saying that the act in and of itself is, is regenerative that that just being dunked underwater you're a regenerated christian mm -hmm. um but that just as through the preaching of the word it's a means of grace that can open the eyes of a hearer through the holy spirit so to yeah. baptism if we're viewing it correctly as a means of grace it too can have that effect yeah exactly that's a very great way of putting it and that literally just like perfect segue into my next point which is the question is is there anything special in the water itself that save us, saves us? Is this some type of magic water that just works regeneration because of the water? And to that, I would say, nope, absolutely not. The, re the working of regeneration is not traced to like the actual water itself because it specifically is the work of the spirit. It's not the water that does anything. And uh, have you ever heard of Michael Horton? I have. Yes. Yeah. He's a fantastic uh, reform scholar, uh, modern reform scholar. He's really great. And on this exact point, he says just such a beautiful thing. So he says about like, you know, the water not being magic, but God's still regenerating through the water or not through the water, but, you know, through baptism. Right. He says, quote, one of the important distinctions over the centuries of reflection on baptism is between the sign and the thing signified. 
In baptism, the sign is water. You can put your finger in it, you can drink it, you can play water polo in it. The water in baptism is no different than the water from the tap. But water, the sign, is not the only thing involved in baptism. There is a convergence, a meeting of word, spirit, and sign, and the result is baptism. Mm. Through the word of the gospel, the spirit connects this washing with water somehow to a real inward cleansing and regeneration. So in baptism, normal water becomes sacred water, as the waters of the Red Sea, though normal water, became a means through which God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. And I love that last quote uh, that last yeah. sentence about the red sea because that's the exact parallel that paul makes in first corinthians chapter 10 when he talks about how the children of israel it's like the he talks both <clears throat> speaks of both sacraments almost where he talks about the children of israel they were baptized into the sea with moses and how later they drank from the spiritual rock and that rock was christ and then the very next chapter he speaks of the lord's supper it's beautiful parallelism with both sacraments but also being in the old covenant so, right yeah mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that is a that is a beautiful, beautiful quote. I, I really do love that end because you see that that the water itself, the, the Red Sea being parted, it's just water. But what God did, and again, that's so important directionally, what God did is he used that as a means of restoration, redemption, baptism for his people. And so it's just, I, again, I think that that is such a key point is to remember that baptism is a work of God. It's not a work of yes. us, right? Exactly. And a great example that I also thought of is in First Peter chapter 3, yes. where he's speaking of um, the flood and with Noah. And then he says in First Peter 3.20, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, that this being the flood now saves you. And then he says, not by the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for your pure conscience. And yes. the thing that's just so important there is that, yeah, the Noah and his family were saved through the waters. But the reason we don't think the water is magical is because it wasn't like he was the one that got wet in it. He was the one who stayed dry. He was in the boat. But the water was a means by which he was saved. And another thing that we'll get into is baptism and its regard to the remission of sins is that in the same way that Noah was saved through the water with his family, all the enemies of God were drowned underneath. And that same way, when Moses and the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, they were, went through the water while the, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians were all drowned underneath. So that's, again, a very important thing to keep yeah. in mind when considering the typology of baptism and what baptism actually does. That's very true. Yeah, And I, I do, I just want to point out, just because I can't help it, in that Noah example, Notice who was saved, Noah and his family. Yeah, <laughs> I and love also, that part. Also, you, you ever notice how they probably right before Moses they crossed the Red Sea, he's like, leave the infants behind before they can make the decision for themselves. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I saw I see that um I saw a meme like that from Twitter because Luke, okay. I love my Presbyterian brothers. We're great. We we argue well with the Baptists, but have you ever seen a Lutheran fight about baptism? It is different. They go hard. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I actually was watching a video. I forget who it was actually. Um, but they, they are, they are quite fierce defenders of their mm -hmm. view. Yeah. It, they very much the spirit of their, their founder, Luther. Very, very it much. is very fun to watch. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. But, um, again, segueing from the point I made about, um, the, the pursuing Pharaoh being drowned in baptism. Calvin, a complete sidetrack, sorry. But Calvin has a great quote on that. And I, I didn't pull it up, darn, but I could send it to you later, but it's really good. But um, th this all leads into my question of what does it mean that baptism is 
for the remission of sins. Because if you ever recite the Nicene Creed, it says, and I, um, I believe a one baptism for the remission of sins. And a lot of people, they'll hear that, and like, especially in evangelical, oh, you know, baptismal regeneration is kind of like the, the great Roman Catholic boogeyman almost. So yeah. we're going to go into what does it mean that baptism is for the remission of sins? And basically, just to make it clear, baptism, what that means is baptism is for the remission of all of our sins. And so that word all in there is very important. And the reason why it's important is because for a lot of folks, and this starts way back with Tertullian, and it's really funny because Tertullian said, argued against infant baptism and Baptists like to claim him, but he argued against infant baptism because he thought baptism was you know, so effective, but he thought that baptism was only for the remission of past sins and that sins afterwards, they either just couldn't be forgiven or it was like very hard to do so. So that's why he, you know, was a credo Baptist. But um, yeah, so beginning with Tertullian, a lot of people thought that baptism is basically only sufficient for sins committed prior to baptism. Mm -hmm. And also after baptism must be forgiven through penance or through something else. And we in the Reformed tradition would say that is no, that is demonstrably false. And Calvin and his um and uh his commentary on the Council of Trent, he makes a really good point, actually. He says that the Roman Catholics have a low view of baptism because they think that baptism is only sufficient for your original sin and the sins committed prior to that. And afterwards, you need to do penance. And he, he says one of the reasons they made up the, the sacrament of penance or um, abused it in case someone does believe penance is a sacrament. But um, he says they did that because, you know, their baptism wasn't sufficient. And Michael Horton in a podcast, he makes a really good point evangelicals are very similar to Rome in this regard in that baptism is only like a symbol. And so um, you might have grown up evangelical and you remember, um, have you ever been to like church camps? Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. And there's always the time of rededication yep. and basically rededication is the evangelical sacrament of penance because you know, you're Everybody come you're, up to the front. Yeah. No, I've no. definitely, I've rededicated my life to Christ. And one of my old Bibles, I remember writing down a date for it because, you know, yeah. I don't ever like, um, I don't remember having a date where I was, you know, specifically saved. I mean, I said the prayer with my dad one time in bed when I was seven, I said, dear Lord Jesus, I accept you into my heart and I believe you died on the cross. Amen. And that's kind of the whole thing. But it's like, you know, I, I know I believe before that. I remember watching like movies that had like Greek gods in it and being like, hmm, wonder where the real God is and all this. So I've always believed. Right. And um, so nowadays, though, when I think when I think, hmm, when was I a Christian? I think, oh, I was baptized. I can just have assurance I am in Christ. And but um, yeah, I'm kind of sidetracked. You're just going completely off my script. But one of the things, again, is that for evangelicals, their sacrament of penance is that rededication. And again, Michael Horton articulates this very well. It's um, episode two of the podcast he did where it's um, an Anglican, a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, and a Baptist all discussing baptism. And um, it's on uh, his podcast, White Horse Sin, if y'all want to check that out, specifically episode two, but he dives into that a lot and it's really good. But um, all that to say, we believe that baptism isn't just for the remission of your sins committed prior and you don't have to do any penance or rededication afterwards, but baptism is for all of your sins. And this quote from Calvin is, it's, it's really good. It is such a beautiful quote. And like, I remember if whenever I've had like times of despair or just doubting myself, like, am I really a Christian? I always just, I think of this quote and it makes me like, sometimes I'll just get teary eyed reading and just listen to this. He says, we should be certain that at whatever time we are baptized, we are once and for all washed and purged for as long as we live. 
Thus, every time we fall again into sin, we must recall the memory of our baptism and through it grow strong in our confidence that our sins are always forgiven us. For although baptism is conferred on us only once and seems already long past, yet it is not erased by later sins and the purity of Jesus Christ, uh, and the purity of Jesus Christ is offered to us. It is always powerful, always endures and is infected by no stain. Rather, it wipes away and cleanses all of our filth and defilement. Now we must not regard this as an excuse or permission to sin more readily in the future, for it encourages no such boldness in us. This teaching is only intended for those who, having sinned, grieve and lament, being wearied and burdened by the load of their sin. It serves to lift them up and to console them, lest they sink into confusion and despair. Mm. So I just, that quote is just so beautiful because it goes back to um, what Luther used to say whenever he'd struggle with assurance, he would always just say, baptizat to sum, which is the Latin for I am baptized. And this I am baptized is very important because it's not, oh yeah, I was baptized, you know, back then in this day I was baptized. It's no, I am baptized. It's, and the Westminster goes on about this, how the efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment of administration. And that specifically would basically mean it's not about that one time. It's about the whole of your life. Baptism isn't just, oh yeah, I did this back then and now I'm here. No, it's about entering into a life of union right. with Christ. So Christ just, Jesus is the ark and we are in the ark from our baptism on, right? It's it's mm -hmm. not a it's not a it's, it's you're done and then you're out and then it's back to normal, right? We are yeah. sealed uh there. Yeah, no, I wanted I wanted to to go off of that briefly and just say that that is a that is a beautiful quote first of all. I haven't heard that one before. Um but then secondly, um one of the uh the Anglican um Easter vigil that I went to with my wife um, beautiful, beautiful liturgy. Um, one of the things that we did was we uh, re, re uh, basically we were reminded ourselves of our baptismal vows and and what Christ did for us. And then the priest went around and was just sprinkling us with water to remind us that the current state that we're in is still in the state of our baptism, right? And so it's it's that it's that picture that that one act is transcendent into the rest of the christian life you know we are that in our baptism out. at all times which is just such a beautiful beautiful reminder and i've been doing a lot of study in lutheran theology and one of the things that um attracted me to this subject and part of the reason i reached out and was like hey i'd love to talk about this with you is is when they were talking about assurance um and and knowing and obviously lutherans have a little bit different view they don't believe in perseverance of the saints but um, they would say perseverance of the elect, I believe is the language they would use. But, um, yeah. when it comes to how do I know that I'm currently saved, they would say, they would point back to baptism, you know, where some people would, wouldn't necessarily do that. And as I was studying, you know, I went, you know what, that makes a ton of sense. If, if baptism is an act of God, and if baptism is something that doesn't just happen once, but it's something that I'm now living in, in the grace of God that was poured out through the waters of baptism, then yes, I can look to my baptism as a means of assurance, you know, so I, yeah, I just exactly. think that that's really, really beautiful. No, and I, I definitely get that because a lot of the times of uh, people in the reformed world, we've like, developed like this is just a theory this isn't like confirmed fact or anything but i haven't studied the history behind american presbyterians but in my thinking i feel like a lot of presbyterians have a lower view of baptism because of 
how much we're like super friendly with the Baptists. Now I'm by no means saying no more friendship with the Baptists. I I see, I think I see that Spurgeon collection up there. I have mine right, right there. Nope. Yeah, Spurgeon is wonderful. Baptists are wonderful. I will forever be thankful for my, my Baptist church teaching me how to love Jesus. I'll forever be thankful. But they really, Baptists have, it, I feel like affected a lot of Presbyterian sacramentology to the point where, again, like I said in the beginning, at this point, we just do wet baby dedications sometimes. Right. And um, what I would say is that a lot of the times reform people, how we check our assurances by looking inwards at our fruit. And sometimes, okay, I will say this though. Sometimes people trash looking at your fruit way too hard. And it's like, just look at the finished work of Christ. Just look at that. So I just want to clarify right here. Looking at your fruit is good. It's a good thing to evaluate your works. If you say no to that, you cannot read James chapter two and come away saying that you can't read first John. It is essential. But I think the priority of looking at your works is different. So when we look at our works, we're looking to check our sanctification. But if we want assurance of our justification and that we're in Christ, we look to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And again, for assurance, we ground out, we grab onto our baptism because in our baptism christ did something he offered himself to us and we can say okay do i have faith yes okay then i grabbed onto what my baptism offered me christ really did offer himself to us so when we want to look for our assurance we look to christ and we can grab a hold of our baptism because something actually happened and that's the beautiful thing about remembering your baptism and the lutherans did they again they did hold on to that because luther he always said it calvin didn't just get this like from nowhere calvin got it from luther baptism to assume i am baptized not i was baptized and then what calvin just says there about how our baptism and remembering that and grabbing a hold of it is for those who are in despair when they're in sin yeah, absolutely. And I, w- I would say, too, that even the fruit that we produce in the Christian life, I like what you said there, because I do think some people try to de-emphasize that as though, as though that's disconnected from our standing in Christ. And yet, I would just say, if we're baptized into Christ, if we're baptized into Christ, and that's a present reality, then the fruit that we produce in our lives, when we examine that, that's only a result of being attached to the root, which is Christ, who is producing the fruit within our lives. And so when we do examine that, we don't have to go, we don't have to disconnect that from the finished work of Christ as though somehow I'm doing something and Christ did something over here. But no, Mm -hmm. the things that I am doing are a result of this reality over here, which is my justification. And so having that, that connection there as well helps, I think, to to see how it's, it's, it's unified. It's not a disconnected uh, subject. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. And the reason I just wanted to preface that is because a lot of the times there'll be like a lot of folk who will be like, they discover what law and gospel is and the distinction there, which is again, a great distinction. It's a good thing. But what often they do is they hear a little bit of law and they screech gospel because it's like, but it's like, you know, there still is law and you still do have to hear it, but it's like, the problem is confusing law and gospel. It's not just saying one thing about one and one thing about the other. That's not the problem. Right. And so it's always just important to remember that. And Paul emphasized obedience a lot, (laughs) right? And Mm -hmm. you see Jesus, you will know those who are mine if they obey my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then obviously you brought up James too. But I think that if we de-emphasize that, we are de-emphasizing a huge part of the Christian life that in no means diminishes our assurance at all, or, or diminishes the finished work of Christ at all, but instead actually elevates it. Yeah, exactly. And what happens is um, 
a lot of times people will be so scared of legalism that they fall into antinomianism, right. which is basically, and for anyone who just doesn't know, legalism is basically do all these rules, rules, rules. And then antinomianism is the complete opposite, which is saved by grace. Oh, don't worry about it. Just do whatever you want. So it's like when in reality you take certain elements from both, not saying again, like the whole and whole, but you take right. elements from legalism and that, yes, you should strive to follow the law of God. I know legalism is basically about made up laws, but I'm generalizing here. Sure, yeah. You want to follow the law. And then with antinomianism, yes, you want to rest in the grace of Christ and be assured of your salvation, but you have to do those with each other. You have to be able to rest in Christ, but also be able to try and work and do the law of God. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, a, maybe a good way to put it is that rather than seeing here's things I have to do and here's the grace of God, recognizing that the things you do are fueled by the grace of God. Yeah, that's perfect. Because I'm resting in Christ, because I have that assurance, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to right. do these works for my assurance. I do these works because of my assurance. Yeah, yeah. perfect way of say, stating it. So I, I don't even think we sidetracked that much because this was related to how we grab onto our baptism for assurance. But in any case, from the whole thing about grabbing onto our baptism is because baptism forgives us the remission of all of our sins. And so in regard to that, we think of the infants. So this might sound completely contradictory since I just talked about how baptism is the remission of all sins, but in regard to infants, baptism does do something, but it is by faith when an infant comes to faith that they do receive the benefits of like, forgiveness of all their sins. But again, like I just said, baptism still happens. And so this might come as a surprise to most people, but in the case of infants, Calvin was of the opinion that baptism actually forgave original sin. And the reason I say that is because this is, um, I'm going to read to you. And again, um, Calvin is just so pastoral. He's really beautiful. I remember, uh, I think it was from podcast or YouTube video. I don't remember, but someone was talking about how Calvin, you know, he's a huge nerd. He just wanted to stay with his books and write. And he, someone kept harassing him about becoming a pastor. So he's like, oh, fine. But it's like, this man was a great nerd and also just a great shepherd. So it's just really beautiful. Like, I'm just getting chills thinking about this prayer, though. It's so beautiful. He says um, in his baptismal prayer for children from um, uh, the liturgy for the Church of Geneva, this is a prayer. He says, O Lord God, eternal and omnipotent Father, since it hath pleased thee of thy infinite mercy to promise us that thou wilt be our God and the God of our children, we pray that it may please thee to confirm this grace in the child before thee, born of parents whom thou hast called into thy church. And as it is offered and consecrated to thee by us, do thou deign to receive it under thy holy protection, declaring thyself to be its God and Savior, by forgiving it the original sin of which all the race of Adam are guilty and thereafter sanctifying it by the spirit in order that when it shall arrive at years of discretion, it may recognize and adore thee as its only God, glorifying thee during its whole life. So as always to obtain of thee the forgiveness of its sins and in order to its obtaining such graces, be pleased to incorporate it into the communion of our Lord Jesus Christ that may partake of all his blessings as one of the members of his body Hear us, O merciful Father, in order that the baptism which we communicate to it, according to thy ordinance, may produce its fruit and virtue as declared to us by the gospel. So, again, first off, how pastoral and beautiful that is, just something to keep in mind. But again, he literally specifically says of baptism, by forgiving it, the infant, of the original sin, which all the race of Adam are guilty. So, Calvin believed that in baptism for the infants, that baptism forgave it of its original sin, 
but he still emphasized how he still prayed that it may be later, like, you know, forgiven of all sins and accept the blessings that is offered in baptism. So anything yeah. with that? Um, may, Maybe just, and again, if, we, if we're going to get here, I'd just be curious, does, does this, uh, does Calvin, because I, I haven't, I honestly have not dug a ton into Calvin at this point, um, but does Calvin or others believe then that faith within, say, a child or something requires getting to an age where reason becomes a a, a, a part of their life, in other words? Because I've heard some people argue that infants can have faith. Um, I've heard others say, no, it's the faith of the, the, the parents or the guardians of the child that is, to a certain extent, I guess you could say being imputed to that child as righteousness until they reach the age of reason where they can make a declaration. Um, what, what, would you, what would you say here? Because I, I would actually agree with what Calvin just said, but I do think that that's an important understanding too, because I think it assumes then that if the child is forgiven of original sin, but later is forgiven of all sins, the later then indicates that there's a faith that has to come at some point in that child's life as opposed to being immediate, unless I'm misunderstanding. So it's, <clears throat> it's kind of funny. The Reformed are kind of of the opinion of all of them at the same time. So it's hard to explain, but basically like they will like say, yeah, um, an infant has to come to age of reason. And that was in the baptismal prayer where Calvin says, in order that when it shall arrive at years of discretion, it may recognize and adore thee as its only God. So there is that whole thing, but there also is the, this, this slight concept of infant faith. And I don't have the quote right here, but um, Cornelius Burgess, he was uh, one of the people at the Westminster uh, who put, helped put together Westminster confession of faith. He was specifically the head of the baptism uh, chapter, but he, in one of his books, is called Baptismal Regeneration of the Elect Infants in the Church of England because, you know, they were the West, Westminster Presbyterians. They were still Church of England. Right. But um, he, uh, yeah, argues for a concept of infant faith. And um, again, there also is this concept of um, the parent's faith for the child. So it's kind of I know this answer might be a little confusing, but the sure. reform kind of grab onto all these different aspects. So um, it's a. It's, it's an interesting discussion because for some people like uh, Lutherans, I know they harp a lot on the whole infant faith thing. And I think it's a possibility, but really, I think that the, that, I think the reason for that is because they want to say that like on the spot, it always happens, which, you know, is a possibility, but like um what we emphasize is that, you know, faith, like trusting faith where you can actually say, God, I trust in you is essential. And I know we were talking earlier, or um, I was going over earlier about, um, federal vision. So I just will say up front, I'm not a huge fan of federal vision stuff. Like, and I think that might be surprising the most since we're talking about baptismal regeneration, yeah. but I just, I'm not really a huge fan, but I did read Peter Lightheart's book, Baptized Body. And he makes a really good point on infant faith. He talks, he says, do Baptists talk to their babies? And it's like, well, they can't, you know, they can't talk back. They can't trust you, but it's like, no, but they still love you as their mom in their whole capacity. So it's like, what's to say that, you know, an infant can't have that with God, but, um, yeah, I, yeah. I actually, I tend to lean the direction of, of holding to the idea that infants can have faith. And mm -hmm. the one verse I go to is where John the Baptist, the Baptist leaps for joy in his mother's womb. And I go, well, 
there is that so that, oh, yeah. that, that always gets me thinking and i i think to a certain extent there are things that we have to leave up to a divine mystery right that we'll never mm-hmm. fully be able to articulate or systematically come up with a a doctrine about things that we just i mean we can't ask a baby do you, do you have faith yeah you know so it, it gets difficult but um yeah so i apologize if that was a sidetrack but oh no you're good that's perfectly related to the conversation yeah no, but like it is just it's slightly complicated with the reform tradition because we kind of grab onto the whole that they, they need to come to age of reason, but they kind of had faith, but the faith of the imperence is important. So it's you know, Actually, it's all I, I, I do have another question. And mm-hmm. if if you're gonna get to this again, just say I'll get there um and let me know. Yeah, of course. But um in terms of say uh reformed theology versus like a Lutheran theology, uh the reformed would tend to lean. I, I, through my study, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but they would tend to lean more to a receptionism type view of the sacraments, whereas the Lutherans would say the means of grace are always the means of grace, um, regardless of how a person receives it. So, for example, um, in the sacrament of the Eucharist, right, the Lutherans would say it is always the body and blood of Christ. If somebody's receiving it with faith, they're receiving the benefits, but somebody who doesn't have faith, they're still receiving the body and blood of Christ. They're just not going to receive the benefits where the reformed view would say that faith is what makes the sacrament a sacrament in, in many ways. And so in terms of how that relates to baptism, does that, is there a a difference there between the way the Lutherans um, and the, the Calvinists or reformed would, would traditionally see that? No, that's a, yeah, that's a really good point that you made. Um, I would say that it's very similar. So with the reformed view, it's uh, again, like with the distinction between the Lutheran and the reformed, both agree that the person who unworthily partakes of the sacrament is receiving something holy. But the difference is, is that the reform will say he's not actually receiving the body and blood of Christ by receiving something holy, that being the set aside, you know, bread and wine by receiving that thing, he is rejecting it. So by his reception, he's rejecting the body and blood of Christ, which is why he's drinking judgment on himself versus the Lutherans and real presence Anglicans would say no by like, you know, partaking of Christ's body in an unworthy manner. He's drinking like judgment on himself. So there is that distinction, but either way, we both believe the unbeliever is drinking judgment on himself or in eating judgment. But um, so with baptism, I would say like um, it is pretty similar because it's faith that makes it to where um, is what makes uh, the baptism effect, uh, effective for sins. And the reason why um, a lot of times most reformed uh, believe that baptism is for the forgiveness of original sin in infants is mainly because of the fact that infants don't have any actual sin. They have primarily original sin. And so they, they but by having original sin, you need that forgiven. So one of the means through which they're forgiven of that is through the sacrament of baptism. So it's kind of like a, this is a means by which I'm forgiving you now in the case that you die. And that gets into the question of, oh, well, does that mean unbaptized infants go to hell? Because Augustine taught the exact same thing that infants are forgiven of original sin and baptism. And then what did that lead him to? He said, oh yeah, that means non-baptized babies. Hell, that's a, so we do, that does lead into that question. And I will actually get there very soon. So just keep that in the back of your mind but um uh with the whole thing of the baptism for the forgiveness of original sin in infants uh, a common question to that or a common objection is that if like you know if there's perseverance of the saints how does that work there are plenty of people who are baptized as infants and they later fall away so if that's the case how can someone 
receive forgiveness of sins, yet still fall away. And um, John Davenant, so he was a bishop of, excuse me, he was a bishop of Salisbury in the Church of England, and he was also one of the English delegates at the Synod of Dort. And directly addressing this question, he makes this point by stating, quote, they who perish in riper years, that means the infants are baptized who die later on in life, they who perish in riper years without having fulfilled their baptismal vow do not lose the state of salvation, which they had as far as infants are capable, but they lose that state, which being changed, the divine appointment ceases to be sufficient for the salvation of the adult, which was sufficient for the infant or for the salvation of the infant. It is therefore plainly foolish and frivolous to seek for arguments against the final perseverance of the saints from the case of infants. So that may be a little bit confusing, but basically I'm going to focus in on the middle part where he could says, you, could you just read the whole thing one more time? <clears throat> I, yeah, I, missed, I missed the first part. I just want to make sure I'm, I'm hearing the full thing. Yeah, of course. It's a little bit complicated, so I'll make sure to break it down. But um, sure. he yeah. says, they who perish in riper years without having fulfilled their baptismal vow do not lose the state of salvation, which they had as far as infants are capable, but they lose that state. So not the state of salvation, but the state of their age as infants, but they lose that state, which being changed infancy to adulthood, which being changed, the divine appointment ceases to be sufficient for the salvation of the adult, which was sufficient for the salvation of the infant. So basically Davenant's case is that <clears throat> an infant can have the same and this goes back to infant faith, an infant can't have the same level of trust and faith that an adult has. And because of that, they need something to help with that. And that would be either the um, faith of their parents or even infant faith. So they still need something in order to trust in God. So they receive the sacrament of baptism, but baptism for them is sufficient for their infancy since they can't have that level of trust that an adult has. And so what he argues is that going from infancy to adulthood by making that transition, that, that baptism was sufficient for infancy because they couldn't have faith. But if they don't have it in adulthood, then that divine appointment ceases to be sufficient. And I sometimes have a little bit of problems with that interpretation though sure. i wanted to throw that out there but i just will say my main beef with it i guess is the fact that um i know the westminster confession it says of saving faith that it's not about the degree of faith like but it's about like the fact right. that there's faith and that faith will be sufficient so sometimes yeah. i have problems with that but i did just want to put that in there basically i, I but, think too it might it the, it might pose a little bit of a problem too in terms of the doctrine of justification you know is mm -hmm. an infant justified um, when they're an infant in order to be yeah. right in the eyes of God, are they declared righteous through the grace of God, washing away original sin? And if so, then when they're an adult, is there a different kind of justification that they must mm -hmm. have or a different degree of justification? And that kind of leads into the question, well, how are we defining justification? Is it universal? Is it not? Yeah. Right? And then John Davenant's uh, work on it, he does make, he literally makes a case that there are two justifications, one for infants and one okay. for adults so it's that one i've always been a little bit like iffy on because it seems like yeah. he's like very much imposing a lot on there but there are like certain points like that i would make and that basically is that since an infant is like you know he's just they're just an infant they're not super capable of doing all that we can god does for their time being since they're infants give forgiveness of that original sin and that when they come to years of reason 
if they really want remission of all their sins, they have to have faith for that baptism to be effective. And one of the illustrations I like to use is um, I got this from Alistair Roberts and uh, one of his YouTube videos on baptism, but it's basically baptism is like adoption. So starting with the case of a, a credo Baptist, somebody who gets baptized after believing, um, if somebody is like a five-year-old kid and they just get abandoned by their family and they're on the side of the road and a really loving family comes and picks them up and they just take care of the kid. And over some time, they grow really close to the kid. And like, you know, the family already has as kids and they, those kids become like his siblings almost. And he has a loving connection. He starts calling the parents mom and dad. He goes to all the family events and he really is loved by his family. He truly is a member. And so one day before they're going to bed, they just go up to him and they go, I really, we love you. We're going to adopt you. And he's just so excited and he's so happy. And so what they do is they go to the, um, they go to the court and then they finally, they do all the paperwork. And then it finally happens. He's legally adopted. And now his last name's changed and all these things occur. So again, I don't know if legally this is all going to work, but it's just in the sure. example, but yeah. And so say a few years go by and one day he's just having lots of existential dread and identity crisis. What does he look for? He goes, no, I really do belong to my family. And he looks at his um, adoption certificate. He remembers his adoption. And he goes, yeah, I truly do belong. And it wasn't as if he didn't belong before, but now what he's doing is he's looking back at that and be like, no, I really am a part of this family. So that's a great illustration for baptism for the adult. And then for the infant, this gives into the whole thing with original sin there. Say that the same scenario happens, but for a baby, baby's just on the side of the road and that family picks it up. They raise that baby and, or they pick up the baby and immediately they're just like, okay, we're going to adopt it. So they do all the paperwork, get all the legal stuff out of the way. And now the baby is a part of the family and the baby grows up in the loving family and all that. Now the, the grown up now who uh, was prior an infant, everyone was an infant before they were grown up. What am I saying? But um, <laughs> this uh, grown up now. We live in a strange world, man. Anything can happen. Yeah. <laughs> at, at this point, but yeah, but um, at, uh, he grows up and now he can either say, okay, I was adopted, but do I really love my family? And then he could leave or he could stay in the family. And so the adoption, even though there is that certificate, what matters is whether he accepts that this is my family and stays or whether he abandons his family. So I would say with the original sin thing that Christ really is offering himself and he's forgiving them of original sin, but actual sin still can okay. manifest. And so what it basically is, is that you know, you have to accept what is offered, what is offered there. And so that is kind of how I use to kind of like make sense of the, the Davenant sure. quote, but there are still certain things to wrestle with in regard to the degree of faith, but that's yeah. like a really, the adoption thing's a really good example. I think of how yeah, baptism I, I do think that's a good example. So this is, this is definitely going to be a sidetrack, but I'm just curious if you studied it at all and what your thoughts are. I assume you disagree, but um, I'd still be curious to hear your thoughts. So in kind of more of Augustinian uh, thought, um, he really had three groups of people. And I, I would say Lutherans to a certain extent would have this as well. But instead of just two groups, there's the reprobate and there are the elect. He would say that there are the reprobate, there are the elect, and then there are those who are truly regenerate, but then fall away and are not given the gift of perseverance to the mm -hmm. end. And so the argument I've heard oftentimes is this takes care of the whole idea of infants falling away because you can truly fall away, but the elect will always persevere to the end. Um, so it's an idea of perseverance of the elect rather than perseverance of all regenerate. So that goes into the idea of, can you, yeah. 
actually fall away. So have you explored that at all? Is that something um, that you've considered? I have, I have heard of it, but um, I, again, you know, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't say I would fully agree, but um, I would say that like uh, in regard to the forgiveness of sins for uh, forgiveness of original sin for infants, that that's basically like a thing, mainly like just in case they like pass away or die. But um, I have like heard that before and I've like, I've done some thinking on it actually later on here, I am going to go into some Augustine. Uh, I have a few of his books uh, sit, sitting right there, but no, I haven't explored that too much, but um, right. I know that is like a, because I know Thomas Aquinas, uh, well, I remember reading his Summa yeah. and question 23, he sounds straight up like Calvin, like how he talks about predestination, but right. you know, he is a, a Roman Catholic. So it's like, okay, he, so I kind of, I didn't even study this, but I probably thought he probably thinks certain people can be regenerate, but later fall away. And that's only the elect who uh, persevere to the end, right. but yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, really, really good questions though. Definitely a lot of things to keep in mind, but, um, yeah. So with regard to Calvin and Davenant, they basically were of the opinion that baptism forgives original sin and just something that I need to clarify. It's very important. <clears throat> baptism forgives original sin in their thoughts, but it does not remove it. So it doesn't completely wash away original sin. So that now they're just, Oh, no more sin at all. What it basically is, is that's kind of like, think about how we're imputed with Christ's righteousness. We still have our sin. We still sin, but we're forgiven on it, of it because of Christ's righteousness. So in the same way in baptism, uh, their sin is no longer imputed in them. And I'm actually pulling up a, oh, here it is. So Calvin actually makes that point. And um, one of his responses to the Council of Trent, uh, he says, we assert that the whole guilt of sin is taken away in baptism so that the remission, so that the remains of sin still existing are not imputed, that this may be more clear. Let my readers call to mind that there's a twofold grace in baptism for therein both remission of sins and regeneration are offered to us. And then he goes on to basically make the case that um, baptism, it forgives sin, but it doesn't just get rid of it because a lot of, uh, and a lot of the Catholic polemics of that time, they would argue that it just, completely got rid of original sin. So just want to make that point. very Yeah. Clear. Yeah. That's, that's a good point for sure. Mm -hmm. But um, all that uh, to lead to the next question that I would get into, which is basically it kind of relates to what we were talking about with like, you know, infants receiving uh, original sin. That is a question of Liberty. I think whether all of them do unanimously, but um, it kind of leads to this and that's do all that receive baptism along with the benefits, uh, receive along with it, the benefits of which the sign points to. And I think a lot of people, everyone kind of has to say this. Um, the answer would just be no, because again, baptism doesn't just, you know, work like a magic ritual or whatever, because for baptism to have its efficacy, we must actually accept what is offered in the baptism. And back to Calvin's um, right. uh, treatise on the sacraments or specifically his, um, Catechism of the Church of Geneva, one of the questions asked after he says, you know, um, newness of life and uh, pardon of sins are offered to us in baptism and received. One of the questions is, how are these blessings bestowed upon us by baptism? And the answer is, if we do not render the promises they're offered unfruitful by rejecting them, then we are clothed with Christ and presented with his spirit. So we have to actually accept them and not reject them. And another uh, question is, is this grace bestowed on all indiscriminately? And the answer is many precluding, many precluding its entrance by their depravity, make it void of themselves. Hence the benefit extends to believers only and yet the sacrament loses nothing of its nature. So right. one has to actually accept it by faith for it to be 
effective. Right. And I, I think, you know, that scripture is very clear on that. You know, I think of Acts, uh, Acts chapter two, where, where the Peter gives his speech and then they say, you know, they were cut to the heart. What must we, be, we do? Mm-hmm. Well, before he says, be baptized for the remission of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says, repent. Yeah. So there's there's an element of human response that must take place in order to be baptized for the remission of sins. And um, and obviously, and this is primarily speaking to the case of adult baptism. But regardless, I think that that alone shows that you can't just approach the waters of baptism and expect that it's going to have a regenerative effect on you with no repentance, with no faith, with no um, uh conduit for god's grace to you know we're saved by grace through faith so great faith yeah. is the necessary conduit to receive the grace of god through the word through the sacraments mm-hmm. yeah and a, a great quote on this i know i was going to jump into the fathers later but i just i couldn't help myself because it's just too good but uh bring them jerome, out man. yeah jerome in his commentary on galatians uh he writes when he says um speaking of uh acts where um where, uh, what was it? Oh, Simon, the magician received baptism, but you know, he wasn't really baptized, but um, Jerome writes on this when he says, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself, clothed yourself with Christ, which is from Galatians 3, 27. Paul shows how we are born children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The idea that Christ's metaphorical clothing is confirmed not only by the present passage, but also by another in which the same Paul exhorts, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, uh, this is where it starts to get important. So if those who were baptized into Christ clothed themselves with him, it is clear that those who did not clothe themselves with Christ had not been baptized into him. To those who are reckoned to be faithful and to, and to have embraced the baptism of Christ, it is said, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone has received only the bodily baptism of water that is visible to the fleshly eyes, he has not clothed himself with the Lord Jesus Christ. For Simon the magician and the acts of the apostle that received the baptism of water, yet he had not clothed himself with Christ because he did not have the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the heretics, hypocrites, and those who lead morally reprehensible lives appear on the surface to receive baptism, but I do not know if they, are, they have the clothing of Christ." Therefore, let us take heed, lest by chance someone among us be taken by surprise and rebuked for not having been baptized into Christ because he does not have the clothing of Christ. So I just think that the Simon the Magician example is perfect for how we're to see it is that one can have water baths. And I know a lot of Lutherans get like, you know, they get all salty about, you know, it's not, it's no water spirit baptism. It's just baptism. (laughs) Okay, dude, whatever. But you know, a lot of people they'll receive water baptism, but they won't actually receive spirit baptism because they reject what's offered there. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. That's, that's a really good point to make. Cause I think that if we, if we start to assume that the grace of God is gifted universally without faith, then we're in direct contradiction with the idea that we're saved by grace through faith, yeah. right? So exactly. that is a absolutely <clears throat> essential distinction. Um, and and uh, I don't, I don't want to usurp where you're going with, with your direction, but another question I have is then when somebody, I, I, I get this question a lot, Jonah, if you believe that God is doing something to people in baptism, that there's a means of grace that's being poured out through baptism, that is actually accomplishing something like regeneration and the forgiveness of sins and the gifting of the Holy Spirit and all that, is baptism necessary for salvation? Right. That's a huge question mm-hmm. that comes along with that. Are you saying that if somebody believes, but they don't get baptized, 
their sins are not forgiven. They don't receive the Holy Spirit. They, they are, they're not cleansed. They're not regenerated. Um, and so how would you respond? I have my own response to that that I typically use, but I'd be curious to hear what your response would be. Are you a hacker? What? That's literally the exact question that's next after what I just went over. That's so funny. Oh, there we go. Beautiful, man. I'm yeah, on top so, of things today. Yeah, that's, that's really <laughs> funny. I just want to make it clear. I didn't send him uh, a script or anything. So that's just, that's so this is funny. the fruit of my um, baptism. The spirit is helping me here. <laughs> honestly. But um, right before actually going into that, I will say, like, I'm um, just to comment what you're saying. Yes, exactly. Um, faith is essential to the nature of the sacrament because a lot of the times people are like, they get nervous about baptismal efficacy is because we hear so much like, you know, from Catholics about like, you know, how baptismal regeneration all that they think baptism is a work. And in reality, though, Luther, baptismal regeneration, he was the guy who, like, you know, was the one who championed sola fide. And so that's why it's so important that faith is necessary to receive what baptism offers because we're saved by faith alone. So we receive, we don't get baptized, we receive baptism. Right. So what, when will we do get baptized? But in that baptism, we're receiving God's gift. We're not like going to get, we're not taking it. But um, yeah, like and really quick, if, if I could, I just want to yeah. jump in too, because I think a lot of people really do get worked up about the idea of baptism is a work. Why are you adding to sola fide? Why are you adding to sola fide? And so what I would just ask them is if somebody preaches the gospel, and somebody hears that, repents, and believes, is that a work or is that the grace of God? That's a really Everybody good would go, well, no, that's that's how you people preach the gospel, people hear and they believe that's how the gospel is spread. That's how we disciple the nations is through the preaching of the gospel. Well, why is that not a work? Well, because that's God's grace. Well, look at baptism the same exact way, and you'll see that there's there's no work to be found there on our part. It's totally the grace of God. So yeah, exactly. People will be like, "Oh, I'm all for it. sermonic regeneration." Someone hears the word, they can be regenerated. But as, as soon as you bring in God's divinely instituted means of grace, that's a work. That's no no. Right. So, right. Yeah, and also with baptism being a work, it's like not at all. I mean, if you read in Titus chapter three, starting in verse four, it says, "But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us." not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs of heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that's one of the reasons why Lutherans in particular in the Reformation, and even a lot of like people like Calvin, they grabbed onto that and say, it's literally saying how we're not saved by works, but by the washing of regeneration and universally the church fathers i've always said read that be like oh washing regeneration that's baptism right so it's like yeah that doesn't so just from that alone we know baptism isn't a work it's what god does for us now if you see it as a work then it can become a <clears throat> then it beca can become a work but yeah that's just super important to get out of the way but yeah. to what you're saying <clears throat> given all that is attached to baptism is it absolutely necessary for salvation and again, I will be getting to the fathers pretty soon, but Augustine gives, he gives such a good explanation of it. He, he says it so well, but just, to, you know, just to tease y'all a little bit with not having Augustine's amazing explanation yet, um, just no. And the reason why we say it's not absolutely necessary is because God is not restrained to his means by which he saves people. And he uses plenty of means to bestow his gifts on his people. And so back to Ursinus and what he was saying, um, Real quick, I have to pull up what he said just to give some context. 
uh it's not here he says though um he says all those who are baptized with water whether adults or infants so not all who are baptized are made partakers of the grace of christ for the eternal election of god and his calling of the kingdom of christ is free so that's back to what we were talking about before that not all who receive it are like absolutely saved but then he says this nor are all those who are not baptized excluded from the grace of christ for it is not the want, but the contempt of baptism that exclu excludes men from the covenant of God made with the faithful and their children. So it's not the lack of baptism that would make one not say it, but rather it's the contempt if you're directly rejecting that in the same way that if you're rejecting to hear the words of God, you're not going to receive right. that salvation. Yeah. And that, that actually, that's, that's perfect. So the, that, mm -hmm. that would be basically my same answer. And um, a pastor that I know he uh, gave a beautiful, beautiful picture. It was a, a like a, an analogy of, of how is baptism necessary for salvation? And he said this, okay, picture Peter, right? Preaching right after Pentecost. They say, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and believe and you will be baptized. You will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says that there were about 3000 that came to the Lord that day, right? So picture that Peter's down there in the water, or if you're Presbyterian by the baptismal font, and uh, he's got all these people lined up to be baptized. Huge line of 3000 people. One of the people way, way in the back, he's all excited to get up to be baptized by Peter. He's so excited. He just keels over and he dies. Now, word it goes up to Peter, and they say, listen, this guy was here. He was going to be baptized, but he just, he just died. Is he saved? Peter goes, oh, absolutely. Absolutely, he's saved. Now, word gets back to the line, you know, absolutely, he was saved. And the guy who was standing behind him goes, well, there's just this huge line. I don't want to wait if he's saved, and I don't need baptism, whatever. And he leaves. Word gets back up to Peter, and Peter says, he went out from us because he was never of us. That's good. So that's that's, that's the analogy that shows that it's not the act itself. It's the posture of heart mm -hmm. that, that is approaching baptism. And like you said, the contempt for baptism would disqualify. Yeah. So no, exactly. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. And it basically just comes down to God isn't restrained to means. And it's like God can regenerate however he wants. God can regenerate some people through just they might not even be exposed to the word, but they're just regenerated. Like John the Baptist was regenerated in the womb. God can regenerate some people through the word. And baptism is also one of the means that God can use, but it's not absolutely necessary. Right. And, the, and that, that's that's the key right there is it's one of the means, right? It is not yeah. mean. So mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of times with very high sacramental systems, they'll make it seem like this is the only thing. And it's like, I even remember um, there's a YouTube channel that's a uh, set of Acanthus, which basically is a way of saying they're, they're Catholics, but they don't think Peter, or they don't think like the throne of Peter, or the papacy is actually there anymore. They think that the seat is empty. So they're a little kooky, but this guy just made a YouTube video. And because a lot of Catholics, they believe in something called the baptism of desire, where it's kind of similar, where it's like, you know, you die, you want to get baptized, you'll basically receive that. And he's just like, no, you must absolutely be baptized. It is necessary because this guy is just like, no, dude, it's that's not how it works. But that's just, that's what stuff like that does to your head. But the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, in chapter 28.5, it, it puts you really well where it reads, Although it be a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance, that being baptism, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. So again, baptism, what it mainly comes down to is baptism is a mean, 
but God, God doesn't, God isn't subordinate to his own means. He institutes them because he is the one who did it. They are not, they don't have power over him. God can use whatever he wants. Right. Right. The, the, the means of grace are, are there for us as humans, not for God to, it's not, it's not limiting God in any capacity. It's for us as humans to understand how God distributes his grace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I remember in the Westminster larger catechism, catechism one of the questions are um how are the sacraments effectual means of salvation and it's like you know some people will read that out of context and maybe think oh you have to have the sacraments to be saved but it's like a few questions right before that it goes how is the word of god um, or how is the word an effectual means of salvation so it's like again god works through means and right. even though you know the bible isn't a sacrament it definitely there are sacramental like traits i guess you could say of it I, right. so yeah, being very general there, not making a big theological claim. I'm not adding another, <laughs> like yeah. a, another sacrament or something. But um, yeah, so with all that, we've seen a lot from the Reformed tradition. But because of that, is there anything from the church fathers that can substantiate what is being said here? Or is it all basically just later innovation, completely disconnected from the primitive church because they want to do something different for themselves? And my answer to that is, that's not the case at all. But as a matter of fact, yeah, there is a lot from the fathers that we can get here. So again, there's a lot of stuff, but I'm only going to be going over primarily two individuals from the early church. And I'll just go over about what they have to say on baptism and how it relates to what it was said earlier. So one thing is about the difference between the, the sign and the thing signified. And so I've heard this a lot, especially from, <clears throat> from Lutherans mainly, but they'll go on about how the early church has always thought, oh, baptism is just baptism. There's no distinction at all. And it's like, I love my Lutheran, I love my Lutheran friends, but no, there always has been the distinction of the sign that things signified. And one of the places we get this from is this is relatively early. It's from the mid third century. And I think the year 257 AD, but they had like a, a controversy about whether those who were baptized by Gnostics are like, um, if they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ or in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, whether they really were baptism, because they still, they had a very high view of the sacrament that it really did uh, give to you uh, the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins. And so they were like, okay, well, did they actually receive these things? And so uh, there's a treatise from the mid third century, and it's called A Treatise on Rebaptism. And the author is anonymous, but it's believed that he was likely a bishop and responding to something that Cyprian says. But if you ever get time, it'll probably maybe take you like 20, 30 minutes, not even. It's a fantastic treatise. Definitely read it. Just look up a treatise on rebaptism. It's really wonderful. Okay. And he goes into how they're really like God isn't, this goes back to God isn't constrained by means and how there really is a difference between the sign and the thing signified. And I will say this before I get into this, I'm going to be reading quotes from the fathers. Please, please, please. If you're actually curious, look up the fathers and read their, what they say in whole, because I cannot tell you how much I see people just strip the fathers of context it happens with catholics it happens with orthodox gosh it happens with evangelicals there'll be people be like this father believed in sola fide and it's just him quoting like ephesians 2 8 and 9 please what i'm saying here <laughs> if you want to read the fathers and their whole i'm encouraging you i right. do not want to strip them of their context everyone does this all the time right and i would i would also encourage too something that i think everybody is guilty of reformed christians catholic christians orthodox christians alike all of them when they read the church fathers they're trying to 
they're trying to fit them into their own paradigm and say like this father is clearly a roman catholic this father's clearly eastern orthodox this guy this guy he's really a reform we we need to let the fathers be the fathers and not Amen. try to fit them into a paradigm to accommodate um our our perspectives yeah no it, exactly that happens all the time like especially like you'll read a, someone like um i always like to if you look up church fathers the first thing you see is like a website from catholic answers and it's just right. like yeah. his father from the papacy and it's like they said Peter was nice or something, or it's right. like a lot of times they're just completely stripped of their historical context, like realizing that the church in Rome had a very high primacy because of his position in Rome, not because of apostolic authority to lead the whole church. Granted, Peter in Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says, you're a Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church. That's reading so much into it. So, right, right. yeah. And again, this happens with Protestants and a lot of times they'll just cherry pick for uh sola fide. And like just the other day I saw this, this was so goofy some it was from an evangelical or something someone tried to argue that like some of the fathers believed in sola scriptura and i will grant that there are elements of sola scriptura in certain fathers i'm not going to try and make the claim that they're all proto-protestants but oh this made me just go mm. someone quoted from john of damascus talking highly of scripture and it's just like there literally is a part in his thing or his exposition of orthodoxy where he literally says and our doctrines are not restrained to the scriptures alone for Paul gave us the holy traditions and I'm just like <laughs> just yeah basically but I, it's just uh, a huge preface I, I I like to I like to joke that Protestants their version of church history generally speaking is the apostles yeah. Augustine and then probably Luther <laughs> generally speaking honestly yeah it's like no yeah that's mainly how it is is apostles died church went pretty bad and oh here's Augustine church went bad again and oh Tom Aquinas maybe said something cool but right. he's still filthy papist then yeah then Luther he, right. he yeah so that definitely is the case and it's so important for Protestants to be deep in history because despite yeah. what despite what they'll tell you to be to be um this, uh, Jordan could be Cooper. I think he said that to scratch the surface of church history is to cease to be Protestant. You'll become a Catholic Orthodox, but to really be deep in history, you will, you will retain your Protestantism. I That's that will happen. Agree with that. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just wanted to make that huge preface about fact check me, read the fathers for yourself. So I'm not just stripping them of their context because I've seen it so many times before I spend literally two hours probably talking about things I've seen, but um. This anonymous author of this treatise on rebaptism, in regard uh, particularly to the difference, the difference between the sign and the thing signified, he writes um, after going through how um, I think it's in Acts chapter ten. I'm not. It is in Acts chapter ten. But there are people who like they receive the Holy Spirit, and Peter's like, "Well, they should get baptized. What's to withhold them now?" So after going through that passage, this author writes, "And there will be no doubt that men may be baptized with the Holy Ghost without water." as thou observed that those that these were baptized before they were baptized with water and the announcement of both the announcement of both announcements of both john and of our lord himself were satisfied and then this is really important for as much as they received the grace of the promise both without the imposition of the apostles hands and without the laver of regeneration which they attained afterwards and their hearts being purified God, best God bestowed upon them at the same time in virtue of their faith, remission of sins, so that the subsequent baptism conferred upon them this benefit alone, that they received also the invocation of the name of Jesus Christ, that nothing might appear to be wanting to the integrity of their service and faith. So that just, that quote there is huge because what does it first do? Well, it establishes that you don't need just specifically 
the baptism of water to receive forgiveness of sins in the Holy Spirit, you can have the baptism of the Spirit. And it also makes sense that you get that in virtue of your faith. That is what the driving factor is here. And like, I just remember reading that. And like, um, the reason I came across is because the other day, um, I recently visited an Orthodox church with one of my, a few of my buddies, one of them, uh, was an Orthodox convert. And I was just, um, reading through a lot of the fathers, what they had to say about images of Christ. And I was actually really surprised that like a lot, I'm not like super anti icons and all that. I'm like, um, (laughs) second commandment violation i'm very like i'd say i'm pretty agnostic on it i'm still studying learning but it's like you know but um i i'm very very surprised that a lot of the fathers despised images in churches so um and it wasn't later on and again that this isn't me just trying to give like you know iconoclastic propaganda that just is what i was seeing but i remember just looking yeah i remember just looking through that and i remember seeing something in the index when i was going to something about images and i said wait that says baptism about like you know that's not with water and i'm like i'm like really because a lot of times you hear that oh the fathers thought that they were the exact same things but um he makes it very clear that like one can receive the baptism of the spirit without the actual water so he's making a distinction between the sign and the thing signified and again this is very early this is right middle third century so yeah and that again, I think I think you're the point you just made. It goes back to not taking the fathers and trying to fit them within your own paradigm, but letting them be, because you know the Orthodox will argue, you know, that icons were always accepted. But I, I had the similar experience when I went researching. My goodness, is it a mixed bag? You hear a ton that are absolutely adamantly opposed. You hear some that are absolutely for it and then there's some neutrality about it but mm-hmm. you you don't see any unanimity <clears throat> when it comes to that that subject and so we yeah. can't be trying to say they all believed this you know mm-hmm. yeah and it's like not even like i'm like looking to them as an authority to absolutely determine these things what i'm really doing is just evaluating certain claims really because if something is an apostolic practice that's essential to the nature of worship you'd expect there to be like a universal consensus almost on that or right. like a universal like disavow of actions that are that occur so that is something important to keep in mind but like just the very the big important thing about this is that a very early christian from again the mid third century 257 a.d is saying the exact same thing as articulated by the later reformed tradition so he makes it clear that one can receive the baptism of the holy spirit without actually having water baptism and like dude like this whole thing is just highlighted from so many good things and i just had to pick one of the best ones but like another really good one is he says um because the holy spirit has affirmed that they who should believe in christ um they must needs to be baptized in the spirit so that then those sorry i'm tripping all of my words these are archaic words okay because the holy scripture because the holy scripture has affirmed that they who should believe in christ must needs be baptized in the spirit so that then those may, so that these also may not seem to have anything less than those who are perfectly Christians, lest it should be needful to ask what sort of a thing was that baptism, which they have attained in the name of Jesus Christ. So the whole time he's making, he's distinguishing between water baptism and spirit baptism and how one is a sign of the thing signified, but one can receive the thing signified apart from the sign. So one can have regeneration before they are baptized right so i think um from there uh, i'm gonna start moving to augustine now he's pretty good and i'm getting slightly close to the end but um okay yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the next point that i would make is um that the reform say is baptism is for the remission of 
all sins. And then, so the question is, is baptism for the remission of all sins or just those committed prior to baptism? And uh, I literally just found this the other day when I was just reading Augustine. It's just so funny how these things work, but he makes it, he makes a really good point. So um, he writes, uh, <clears throat> hold on, make some water. He writes that, quote, true, it is when man was created, he received great power of free will, but he lost it by sin. He fell into death, became infirm, was left in the way by robbers half dead. The Samaritan, which is by interpretation keeper, passing by, lifted him up on his own beast. He's still being brought to the end. Why is he lifted up? He's still in the process of curing. But he will say, it is enough for me that in baptism I received the remission of all my sins. Because iniquity, because iniquity was blotted out, was therefore infirmity brought to an end? I received, says he, remission of all sins. And this is the important part where Augustine confirmed this. He says, it is quite true. All sins were blotted out in the sacrament of baptism, all entirely of words, of deeds, thoughts, all of them were blotted out. But this is the oil and the wine, which was poured in the way. And then he says his error indeed of like the, the person who was uh, wounded by the robbers, his error indeed was already pardoned. And yet his weakness is in the process of healing and the end, the end, if you recognize it, is the church. And then he later goes on to say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then he says, what benefits? Tell them, enumerate them, render thanks. What benefits? Who forgiveth all thine iniquities? This took place in baptism. What takes place now? Who healeth all thy weakness? This takes place now, I acknowledge. So he, Augustine makes it very clear that all of our sins, not just the ones committed prior to baptism, but all of them are forgiven in the laver of regeneration, in baptism, but that we still, you know, we still sin today and all that. And so, you know, we still are sometimes, we're still sinning. It's not our sins are just gone. We still do sin, but it's forgiven. So right. Augustine just makes a great point there. That's very important to realize because I remember reading through some of the, excuse me, uh, some of the church fathers like Tertullian and they would always say about, oh, only sins prior to baptism are forgiven. I'm just like, did the reformers just you know, come up with that? So like right. when I read that in Augustine, it just was very reassuring. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I like that image too of, you know, that being carried, but there's still that process of being cured right you know even though yeah there I, is the element that we have been lifted up out of our state entirely there's still that process then which we would call sanctification yeah i'm really glad you picked up on that because that's definitely uh, an important part of that but augustine is just great on a lot of stuff and then this also goes to our question of is baptism absolutely necessary for salvation and right. from the previous uh father who is from the or anonymous author who's from the mid third century he would say no but augustine would also say no and this he just he says it so so beautifully so he says in his um uh work his polemical work against the donatists on baptism he writes this by all these considerations it is proved that the sacrament of baptism is one thing the conversion of the heart another but that man's salvation is made complete through the two together nor are we to suppose that if one of these be wanting, it necessarily follows that the other is wanting as well. So if one's missing, it doesn't automatically mean the other is. So um, that, if one is, that if one is wanting, the other is wanting also, because the sacrament may exist in the infant without the conversion of the heart. So again, that would kind of go to Augustine's opinion on infant faith. Sure. So the sacrament may exist in the infant without the conversion of the heart. 
and this was found to be possible without the sacrament in the case of the thief on the cross. God in either case filling up what was involuntarily wanting. And then this goes back, this point right here goes back to what Ursinus says. But when either of these requisites is wanting intentionally, then the man is responsible for the omission. And baptism may exist when the conversion of the heart is wanting, but with respect to such conversion, it may indeed be found when baptism has not been received, but never when it has been despised. So the way Augustine puts it is just so beautiful. And he just makes it so clear. You can be saved without baptism. What baptism does is it makes the salvation complete. And for and we have to say that's absolutely true because what does baptism do? It enters us into the church. You can be saved and like you can be saved outside the church, but the church is the fullness of salvation. And the reason I just I make that claim is that we look at Cornelius and how he was a God-fearing Gentile, but he still needed to be baptism because he had, he would die and go to heaven he wasn't in the ark of salvation necessarily. Right. He wasn't joined to the, the visible body of Christ. And so while he might have been united to Christ spiritually, he wasn't united to Christ visibly. And that's very important. So Augustine makes it clear that baptism makes our salvation complete, but that also if one of the things is wanting unintentionally, it's still okay. So in the case of the infant, though he doesn't have conversion of the heart, he has the sacrament on his behalf. And with the thief on the cross, though he doesn't have the sacrament, he has a conversion of the heart. And it really is the omission of the sacrament intentionally that, that is what's wrong right wow that is that's that's pretty profound i like that a lot wow <laughs> that's really good no yeah he's Augustine's thank god for augustine man mm-hmm. no really, augustine really he really mind. is a gift sometimes people try to say well, who's your favorite church father and like i don't want to say augustine because everyone says it but like i always have to yeah. he really is a gift to the church and he I'm articulates sure. things so well so just to one of the last questions basically yeah is um, in regard to, well, do babies who don't get baptized go to heaven? And it's really funny. I'm going to use Augustine to argue against Augustine. <laughs> oh, perfect. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. We can't, we so, can't give him too much love. <laughs> yeah, no, not too much. And not everyone's perfect. I mean, like some of the things he, uh, he says about certain subjects is, eh, yeah, well, th- I'm pretty well, sure. Yeah. He doesn't believe women are made in the image of God, but um, interesting. So yeah, we still love him though. He's still great. Not everyone's perfect. We all probably have the a lot. We have definitely do have some theological error, but um, uh, he basically argues that infants that don't receive the sacrament of baptism go to hell. Basically they die. So I would disagree with that, but um, I'll read this quote from him that I think is really good. And it's like, it's important to keep this quote in mind with the background of um, what I just read earlier. So he says, but if they are rightly called believers, that is the infants, be, um, because they are in a certain sense profess faith. And this goes back to what you're saying about the faith of the parents. He says, because they in a certain sense profess faith by the words of their parents. Why are they not also held to be before that penitence when they are shown to renounce the devil and this, and, and this world by profession again of the same parents? So he goes on to say, but yet who knows not that the baptized infant fails to benefit from what he received as a little child. If on coming to years of reason, he fails to believe and to abstain from unlawful desires. If however, the infant departs from the present, the present life after he has received the baptism, the guilt in which he was involved by original sin being done away, he shall be made perfect in the light of truth, which remaining unchangeable forevermore illuminates the justified in the presence of their creator. So I don't, I don't think I did. Um, I don't think I did uh, rightly preface this when I was saying this, but my main point was basically how, um, what was it? Um, it was about uh, how coming to years of reason. So this goes back to what um, Calvin and Davenant were saying about how 
um, when an infant comes to years of reason, that then they receive the benefits that you have to actually accept what is offered to you in your baptism. So that's what Augustine like makes clear here when he says um, the baptism won't benefit the child if he doesn't receive um, the if he doesn't if he doesn't actually accept the promises when he becomes of an older age. But if he dies in his infancy, not being able to have that age of reason, he still will go to heaven on the basis of that. And what I was saying though about um, how many needs Augustine to argue against Augustine. One of the things he makes clear is that they have faith by the words of their parents, but he still believes they go to hell when they die. But I would argue from his last one where he goes, if any of these are intentionally lacking, that being faith or the sacrament, they fill in for each other, though. God can, you know, fill that hole that was like empty. And so what I would say is that infants aren't lacking faith. If, if an unbaptized infant dies without receiving baptism, they don't go to hell because what do they have? They have the faith of their parents. And I would say that that is sufficient in that case, because even though my parents didn't have me baptized, they had me, you know, dedicated as a baby. It still was a lot of the same, the same thing about dedicating to raise me up as a, a godly young man. And so that was, that kind of would basically be my argument is that the parental faith is a substitute for the sacrament, or even if you're lean more towards a Lutheran direction, you would say, okay, well, the infant's faith, like that of John the Baptist in the womb, was sufficient for that salvation. So either way you could go. Right. A lot of the reason why people like Davin and Calvin thought the way they did about original sin and how it's forgiven his baptism is because Augustine was big on the fact that infants can't really have like, like the same type of faith that we have. And so that's where that comes from. Great. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Do you have anything else or is that about wrap up what you what you had? Uh, yeah. So I'm very close basically. So just okay. before, yeah, before we, um, before that just wraps up all I say, I just would basically give a quick summary of baptism. Sure. And so in light of all that we've gone over, I would say baptism as, as the reforms say is a sign and a seal, but it's not just a sign. Christ truly offers himself to us in those signs and he uses it in the sign and he uses it as a means of grace. Faith accepts what is offered and without faith, one rejects Christ, one rejects Christ's gifts. And instead of being saved through the waters of regeneration, they are instead drowned in the washing of judgment in the same way that Israel was saved through the water, but the Egyptians were drowned in it. And the same way that no one, his family were saved through water while those who rejected God were drowned in it. So that's how I would summarize baptism in this case that's excellent i i love that uh one last question um the, la the last question i have is as reformed christians we traditionally would believe that regeneration precedes faith and i can see somebody watching this and going okay if we're saying that regeneration some capacity takes place in baptism doesn't that require faith before you go to the waters of baptism um, in order for baptism to be regenerative and wouldn't that contradict regeneration precedes faith? So just, I, I, we kind of touched on this briefly, but clarify regeneration in, in terms of, of how it's focused in the waters of baptism. Okay. So I've always thought about this too. And I think one of the things is, is that I don't really know if I'm the biggest fan. I, I don't usually use the term baptismal regeneration because of the very point. I typically will say baptismal efficacy. Yeah. And it's because of what you just said, but I would just, I would still say baptism can have a regenerative effect. And my whole thing too, is that 
it always goes back to the fact that it is one of the means one can be regenerated. The Holy spirit can, and again, it's not like the water itself regenerates by the physical touching of water in the same way that the audible words of the scriptures that your ears processing that it doesn't have like the sound waves don't have regeneration in the sound waves, but it's that God works through means. And one of the means that he uses in is baptism. And so I would say this is very consistent with the idea that regeneration precedes faith. So my focus isn't really completely on baptism for regeneration, although that is one of the things that God can use it for, but it more is that baptism offers us Christ and that we receive Christ by faith. So we grab onto our baptism. So going to that, you can still say regeneration precedes faith because especially if you're baptized as an infant and say that the Holy Spirit comes upon you then, then that's one of the times you, that's when you receive regeneration. I wouldn't really say that it's like strictly regeneration that baptism bestows, because I know there are probably people who are baptized as infants who later on in life, you know, go just be crazies and all that. But then later on, they realize like they're regenerated by God. So again, it's just one of the means that God uses for regeneration. So I would put less less focus necessarily on bats on the term baptismal regeneration. Sure. And I would say it's more like baptismal efficacy and that what does baptism do? It's one of the means through which God does regenerate, but he's not confined to that in the same way that I'm not going to place on um the sermon. Oh, we, this is sermonic regeneration. It always regenerates everyone who doesn't No, the, and this kind of comes to how a lot of people say John three, five is about baptism. It's less one was born of water and spirit. He made onto the kingdom of heaven. But what does it say in verse eight? It says the the spirit, uh, the wind blows where it goes. And so is the spirit. So the right. spirit doesn't, you can't just do something. It's like regeneration, regeneration. Like that's not like you're not pouring out regeneration every single time. The spirit works how he wills and it's up to him to decide. So again, for like the 80th time I said it though, baptism is just one of the means by which God does regenerate. I hope that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. Okay, sweet. Well, thank you, brother, for coming on. This was a wonderful conversation. I think it'll be very edifying to all those who are listening. It was very edifying for me. I learned a lot. Um, Definitely feel like I have a better grasp on the Reformed view. So thank you for articulating so well. Um, I'm going to close this in prayer and then we'll call it. Sounds good. good. Thank you so much for having me on as well. Absolutely. Father God, we we come before you and we praise you for your word that we can study to know you, um, to know Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you have provided means of grace for us to know you and receive you, Lord, uh, through the preaching of the word, through the waters of baptism and through the Holy Eucharist, Lord. Um, We praise you, God. You are a great and mighty God. We praise you for the sacrifice of Christ that um, accomplished salvation for us. Um, I'm thankful for my brother who came on today and articulated this this means of grace so well. Um, I pray people are uplifted, encouraged, and that ultimately, Lord, you would receive all the glory, honor, and praise. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.